Hey there, welcome back. This is part two of the Eula Hall series, so you know what I'm going to say. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you are in the wrong place. Scroll back up or down, listen to part one, then come back here. So when we left off last time, Eula Hall was just getting a taste of how local activism could actually change things. Um, So that was kind of exciting. But this is a huge uphill climb, right? So what she was realizing was that a big part of the problem was the folks who held political power in the region. These people did not have the majority's best interests at heart, but they kept getting reelected. And she felt this fire growing within her to fight for change. Unfortunately, she was not getting any support at home. In fact, quite the opposite. So let's back up a little bit. Eula gave birth to their fourth child in 1952. This was Danny. And Danny was born with a hearing problem that would lead him to be deaf for the rest of his life. McKinley urged Eula to stay home and take care of him and the family and quit spending so much time with these organizations. He would yell at her for going to meetings, he would call her a communist, and of course, he would take the occasional swing at her. So she started going to the meetings in secret. Meanwhile, membership numbers of groups like the Appalachian Volunteers, AV, The membership numbers were growing, and one major goal of these groups was to get people educated, which would ideally lead to their participation in the political process and social issues and all that good stuff. Now, the AVs, the Appalachian Volunteers, would go on to merge with the Volunteers in Service to America organization, that's VISTA, in the 1960s. VISTA was a national group Uh, mostly made up of young, college-educated kids who would come in from out of state to spend a year kind of catching Appalachia up to speed, basically. Eula liked these kids that would come in with Vista. Um, These were, you know, outsiders taking the time to really understand their problems and live among them. So she started to consider becoming a Vista herself. Now, she's 36, she's got four kids, she's in a loveless marriage with virtually no money of her own. How do you navigate the next steps? So Eula boarded a plane from Lexington to Georgia for VISTA training. This would require telling McKinley what she was up to, right? Uh, He wasn't thrilled, but... He accepted it when he realized that she would be getting a steady paycheck for the work she would be doing for Vista. What he didn't realize was that to Eula, this money looked like a possible way to separate herself financially from McKinley, right? To gain some independence. So she goes to training in Atlanta and they present to the volunteers some different theories on why Appalachia was in the state it was in. So here's a quote about that. Quote, The cultures of poverty theory, if true, meant that Appalachian people were forever in a hopeless cycle of generational poverty. But Eula never saw herself or her neighbors as victims. They simply weren't given a chance. There wasn't anything wrong with their culture, she thought. What was wrong was the lack of opportunity. What was wrong was the lack of jobs and health care. Their culture was an American culture. 
If they were victims of anything, it was the Industrial Revolution. The ideas pushed by modernization theorists and those at her Vista training gave her reason to believe all hope wasn't lost. Eula returned to Mud Creek a professional activist. The local government was staunchly against the efforts of the AVs and Vista. This only further radicalized the groups. After a while, Eula was able to get her own car, since she wasn't allowed to use McKinley's. She got herself a Bronco. And as Eula mulled over what issues she wanted to tackle first, it became more and more apparent that healthcare, or the lack thereof, was the root of so many Appalachian problems. Eula and two other volunteers thought it would be beneficial to survey residents on their health needs. They knocked on door after door, abandoned barns, trailers on cinder blocks. Eula thought she was familiar with most of the residents of Mud Creek. She had no idea how many others were so secluded their existence was practically secret. And the results of their visits were gutting. So if men got sick, they would go to the doctor so that they could quickly get back to work. But for the most part, if women got sick, they just had to suffer through it because there wasn't enough money to cover a doctor's visit for someone who wasn't bringing home a paycheck. So men were priority in that way. They also saw lots of cases of depression, lots of poor hygiene, really bad eating habits, and everybody smoked. Another concerning thing was that women were not being taught parenting skills, so they were giving infants solid foods and sugary drinks way too young, simply because they didn't know any better. The worst thing of all, though, according to Eula, was the domestic abuse. And it wasn't like women were saying, I'm being abused. You could physically tell by looking at them, the bruises and the scars. Another daunting problem was access to clean water. And this is crazy because it it makes you think I'm talking about like the 1920s. We're talking the 50s and 60s. People were still suffering from dysentery. So the AVs, along with some UK undergrads, started testing the water in these areas. Like I mentioned, very few homes had indoor plumbing. The majority of drinking water came from open wells. 75% of which were contaminated. New wells had to be built. I mean, that, that was it. That's what they focused in on. So Eula and the volunteers started the Mud Creek Water Board. And they set up meetings with the Pikeville Water Department, Floyd County Health Department, and even Kentucky state health officials. They went to Frankfurt to talk to the governor and successfully lobbied him to declare Mud Creek an emergency area which led the Office of Economic Opportunity to fund the construction of a new water system. Sounds great, right? But then, once the infrastructure plans were put into motion, Eula and the others realized they were only, quote, drilling areas at politically opportune locations. They drilled only on special people's land, important people, in pasture fields where people had cattle, or sometimes in places where people couldn't get access. It was all according to who was friends with whom. 
So there was um, this man, Sergeant Shriver, director of the OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity. And he was really ready to put in the work for Appalachia. So he, he focused in on Title II of the Economic Opportunity Act, which included, quote, language to envision comprehensive community-wide planning and implementation of programs aimed at combating poverty with the impoverished at the helm. So what that means is this, this had to be a movement led by grassroots organizations like VISTA. And the planners behind this really needed one area to be the pilot for this program, which was a, a health program for the rural poor. They needed like a, a test subject. And Floyd County was the perfect location. Extremely rural. 35% of families had incomes below the poverty line. Unemployment over 10%, more than double the national at the time. Child mortality was crazy high. Just a real mess. So the president of the ARH hospital system, which we talked about in part one, put together this ideal program headquartered at the McDowell Hospital with smaller, more like urgent care facilities across the rest of the county. It was a $5 million proposal, and it was approved. And it was labeled the Floyd County Comprehensive Health Services Program. FCCHSP. I'll be referring back to this program a lot. So this was deployed in early 1967, and Eula was thrilled. Finally, people were taking action with healthcare. Finally. So the program hired a man named Dr. Titzler and opened their first clinic with some nurses on staff. And it wasn't all the way in the holler. It was near the expressway. And so because of its physical location, it would still be a pretty good walk or drive for most people. But it was still closer than the big hospitals. Okay. So naturally, Eula started giving rides to anybody who needed to get to the doctor. And after a couple weeks of this place opening, Eula had to make a waiting list for people who wanted to go get a checkup. So she would have this list of people and she would drive them back and forth when she could. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the beginning, Eula found issues with the inner workings of the clinic. It was operating like an assembly line. The nurses were not helpful. People weren't even having their blood pressure taken or basic exams done before being sent off to the hospitals. So what was the point of this clinic? Around this time, Eula found out she was pregnant again, so she decided to take the opportunity to go see the clinic for herself as a patient. Note that this was the first time she'd received any type of medical care during a pregnancy. 
The first thing she noticed when she got there was that there was no confidentiality. The the staff, they were super unprofessional about just like yelling out a patient's information for everyone to hear. Really bad. Yula was given a very quick once-over and then directed to Martin's hospital for further testing and to be assigned an OB. She was so disappointed because she knew that, like herself, most patients would never be able to afford to go to those hospitals they were referred to. So again, what was the point? After collecting notes on several people's experiences, the volunteers decided it was time to speak up. People weren't getting explanations of what was wrong with them. I mean, they were leaving the place still confused about their their troubles. They were either being referred to the hospitals or just being sent home with a menagerie of drugs. Mind you, the doctors owned the pharmacies. So they suspected that Dr. Titzler had been instructed to only provide minimal care so that the patients would still all be sent to the big hospitals where they could make more money. So they decided to conduct an experiment. The volunteers instructed a young girl named Goldie to pretend to be really sick. So they burst into the clinic with her and Goldie rolls her eyes into the back of her head and she pretends to faint. And the nurses freak out and are like, oh, we've got to get her to a hospital immediately. And Eula tells them, we don't have time. She just needs to see the doctor that's here. Uh, The receptionist is hysterical, and so with all this commotion, Dr. Titzler comes out to the front, and he says, quote, I can't see her, Eula. You see, I'm wearing two hats right now. I'm administrator and doctor. So Eula's like, "What, what does that even mean? Like, you aren't seeing patients at all? And he said, no, I'm just diagnosing them and sending them on. So basically, they had proved proven their hypothesis. The clinic, because of politics and finance, was not providing medical care. It was simply acting as a vessel, redirecting people to the bigger hospitals. Nothing had really changed, and Eula thought, you know, I don't think this is what the people in charge had in mind for this operation. So Eula went to an FCC HSP board meeting and made it clear to everyone that this place that was supposed to be helping the poor was doing no such thing. Later, the governor of Kentucky and Mr. Shriver from the OEO called for some reviews to be made, some reports. These reports, quote, showed stark mismanagement and detailed that the program's flaws were legion. By 1970, FCC HSP had spent nearly $2.5 million in becoming a referral program with little to show for quality health care. No education was being provided, and the delivery system seemed unnecessarily complicated. It was hampered by the lack of paramedical personnel who could triage ailments before referring patients to an already busy hospital. Nearly every facet of the program was underperforming from family planning services to the hiring of local practitioners. The reports noted the clear conflicts of interest among the board and claimed it had led to the sorry treatment of patients and the hiring of only those with political connections. Following the release of these reports, the OEO, 
urged by Eula and the grassroots organizations, said, look, you better fix this or we're going to cut the funding. So they had another meeting where they were forced to hold an election for new board members. And so again, Eula went door knocking. And a week later, Eula was elected to represent Mud Creek residents on the new board of directors for FCC HSP. And of course, McKinley wasn't happy about this either. It meant more work for Eula, more time away from the family, and it wasn't a paid position. Now, a few months later, a new budget was presented and a new full-time director was appointed, a guy from Chicago named Arnold Schechter. Later, Eula said, quote, I really liked Dr. Schechter, but bless his heart, he had no idea what he was getting into. Almost immediately, Dr. Schechter requested a bigger budget. They needed more nurses, practitioners, technicians, med students, paramedics, and, quote, most extravagantly, helicopter evacuation of patients in dire need of care. So Schechter was dreaming big, okay? And the board was like, yeah, no, that's not happening. Uh, They called him a communist. And six months after Dr. Schechter took over, the program was on the verge of shutting down. So some of the folks in charge got together and decided they had to let go of Dr. Schechter. And then they ended the program. The FCC HSP was no more. It had been nearly three years, and their chances of getting federal funding, whether it was being properly spent yet or not, was now gone. In response, Eula and other activists decided to create a grant application for a new health clinic in Mud Creek. The caveat? It had to have a board made up of only community activists. It had to be run by local people for the people. As she and her peers were working on bringing this idea to fruition, she found out she wasn't going to get paid anymore for her work with Vista. Luckily, she'd met a man named John Rosenberg, who offered her a job at his legal aid clinic, a Paul Red. That's Appalachian Research and Defense. His biography could be a whole separate episode. He's an interesting guy. But he had worked for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, and he just had a real passion for fighting for justice and equality. And so he and his wife moved to Appalachia, and he started Apple Red with OEO funding in 1970 to provide legal aid to those who couldn't afford it. So John Rosenberg had agreed to help EKWRO and this Mud Creek group put together their grant for a health clinic, and he hired Eula as a social worker, and so she would work cases uh, on um, black lung advocacy, welfare, food stamps, and social security cases. And they worked well together. Eula was great at finding and helping sick minors. Uh, John bailed Eula out of jail when she was arrested for picketing. So this was a good relationship. Now, their request for a grant to start a health clinic was swiftly denied, and Eula had never been so discouraged. So let's go back to her personal life for a minute. By the the mid-1970s, McKinley had stopped working, and he was on disability through the VA. He was spending most of those checks on alcohol, and he spent his time verbally and physically abusing Eula. Uh, He once twisted her arm out of its socket, for example. All the while, she contemplated divorce, but she was still unsure about how she'd be able to make it on her own. 
So she tried to save every penny that she could, just in preparation, right? Now during this time, she was working officially for Apple Red, but still also involved with EKWRO and some uh, water projects. She also helped with uh, health fairs hosted by Vanderbilt and UK. These fairs provided free health checkups and follow-ups to nearly 500 Mud Creek residents. Nearly 90% of those, uh, those people had never seen a doctor before. Eula provided free housing in the trailer behind her house to students while they worked the health fairs. And then after those students left, she had an idea. She spruced up that trailer behind her house, and she started using it as a place to, quote, meet and counsel people who needed her help navigating the healthcare system. It was her own FCC HSP-style triage clinic with emphasis on caring. It was initially a place to do the small things that didn't require a doctor, such as educating patients on simple acts of daily health care or serving as a place for people to sleep with a roof over their heads. It was all she thought it could be. That was until she made a call to some local doctors. Eula called doctors Jim Squire and Ellie Graham, whom she knew to be deeply caring and selfless. She said she didn't want them to do anything illegal, but she had this patient with jaundice that really needed their help. So they came and saw this girl in Eula's trailer, and that was, that was it. That was just the beginning. So just like that, the doctors started coming back to the four-room trailer week after week. They wouldn't accept more than a dollar a day for payment at first. And the two doctors helped Eula organize medical records. She would shuttle people to and from the trailer in her Bronco. It was essentially illegal what they were doing, but they were helping a lot of people, many of whom, like those attending the college health fairs, had never seen a doctor before. A little while after she'd started this makeshift clinic in the trailer behind her house, she decided she finally had the means to leave McKinley. However, she only went as far as the trailer. She bought a huge padlock and told him he could go on living in the house, but they would never be together again. And it went okay for about two weeks. Then McKinley and one of their sons, Randy, started harassing clinic patients. Then McKinley would come out at night, yelling and trying to break in. After this went on for a while, McKinley started to understand that she was, in fact, never getting back together with him, and he moved out, leaving the house and the trailer to Eula. Then he changed his mind, came back, kicked she and the kids into, out of the house and into the trailer again. By this point, she had filed for divorce and a restraining order, too. It got so scary at night that she would pack up the kids in her Bronco and take them to sleep in a nursing home parking lot. After a few nights, the nursing home called the police, and the police actually let Eula park the Bronco in front of their station. They understood that she feared for her safety if she had to go home. So for a few weeks, to be very clear here, 
Eula slept with two of her children in a Bronco in front of the Pikeville Police Department with a gun in her hand. That's how scared she was of her soon-to-be ex-husband. Finally, two months later, everything was finalized, and McKinley actually checked himself into the Lexington VA Hospital for Mental Health Services. So focusing back on her work, here was the problem they were facing. Quote, In the early days, patients were seen and examined for free, and those who could pay did according to a sliding scale based on income. Eula set up an honor system of sorts, but wanted to be able to overcome the copay fee that precluded the FCC-HSP clinics from being truly universal. Even with the generosity of clinic patients and select donors, there simply wasn't enough money among them to keep revenue steady. The goal was to keep the clinic free and open without placing too much of a burden on the patients. She went to a miners' union meeting to make a pitch to reallocate some of the health and retirement fund they kept to go to her clinic, since it was supposed to go to hospitals or clinics that had shut down or were, were far away. They voted unanimously in her favor. This was a brilliant move on her part. Quote, the more minors they saw, the more money the clinic would receive by turning in records every month for reimbursement. It was exactly what Eula needed to hire doctors, a nurse, buy supplies, and pay herself a nominal salary. A volunteer painted a small wooden board on the front of the clinic, the Mud Creek Clinic. Soon they were seeing upwards of 50 patients a day. She learned how to work with Medicare and Medicaid. Since her clinic was so close to the border, she saw patients from West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, and even Georgia. After funding from the Miners Union came in, Dr. Squire and Dr. Graham went on full-time at the clinic. A local church gave the clinic a grant so Eula could buy a yellow Volkswagen to make home visits. Word of mouth quickly spread the clinic's good reputation. Quote, Sometimes folks who had insurance and were regular patients at Our Lady of the Way or Pikeville Methodist Hospital would take the long trip to come to the clinic because it provided a more comforting environment. Eula was really disturbed by the number of black lung patients she saw. Every one of the minors who came through the clinic was somewhere on the spectrum. They had some sort of lung issues. In 1972, she was elected president of the Kentucky Black Lung Association, and she coordinated trips to D.C. for locals to advocate on behalf of these sick coal miners. Quote, It was on those trips to Washington that I realized what we were doing was much bigger than Mud Creek. There were associations in every state with the same problems we had, and now I was given a stage to affect it across the country. Eula loved going to D.C. She was often the only woman in negotiating rooms full of men. She developed a good relationship with the Social Security Administrator, and she also got along well with Kentucky Senators Wendell Ford and John Sherman Cooper. The bill she went to lobby for was passed, by the way, after several days of intense negotiations. When she got home, her house had been vandalized and windows were blown out from multiple shotgun blasts. Her yard had been torn up. 
retribution from the coal companies for being too loud in D.C. She was called a communist, a socialist, all that good stuff. Another problem was that the two doctors working in the clinic had gotten extremely political and were starting to make patients uncomfortable with their radical opinions. It got so bad that they were eventually voted out at a board meeting for their own safety and the well-being of the clinic. To make matters worse, McKinley was home from Lexington. One night, he snuck back into the house, even though she had a restraining order against him. He was drunk. He lunged at her and swung a whiskey bottle at her face. The boys rushed downstairs, got McKinley away from Eula, and took Eula into the car to go to the hospital. Blood was everywhere, and she was in and out of consciousness. I'm leaving you with a pretty good cliffhanger this time, I think. (laughs) So I'll be back in a day or two with part three of this series, the final part, the conclusion of the Eula Hall story. Uh, Until then, hop on social media and let me know what you think. So uh, stay tuned and see you next time.